Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Natural Hat Trick with Luke Lipinski, Craig Morgan, and Jamie Eisner. Welcome into episode 256 of the Natural Hat Trick podcast alongside Craig Morgan. Let's call this the Maddie Hattie. Oh, hey, look at that. And Matt Lehman in for Jamie Eisner. You can call me Maddie. Maddie Hattie. I'm Luke Lipinski. We have a lot to get to, gentlemen. This has been great having hockey all day, every day. Unfortunately, today, as we record this on Saturday, is the first day there's only one game. I'm not, uh, it's going to take me a while to get used to this. Well, it, it, this is the time of year, though, that I, I love. I actually like the uh, later rounds a little better because this is where we, you, could, you kind of separate some of the teams that you knew weren't going to be in it in the end anyway. And we've seen a lot of the the top seeds advance uh, after all the chatter. It's funny, isn't it? You know, everybody talking about this format and how it's, it's not going to be a, a good indicator of the best teams and it's not fair. And here we are with most of the top teams advancing. You just like the later rounds. Cause we don't have to talk about Stan Bowman anymore. Just, just be honest. Well, yeah, that's, that's been a constant for several seasons now. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's along those lines, six of the eight teams that had a first round bye advanced there was a stretch uh and obviously the coyotes games against the avalanche games four and five were in the middle of this where teams that played in the round robin instead of the qualifying round had won 13 consecutive games so somewhere around the midway point of last week it seemed like everything shifted and the better teams whether it's just because they naturally were the better teams and maybe you know the five seed in each conference was gone in the qualifying round so that that buffer team wasn't there maybe it's either because the the best teams are just that much better or not having to play an elimination round that first week of the tournament, maybe that helps preserve your uh, your energy level or whatever. But there was a huge divide this past week. Five games in eight days, right? That, yeah, that, that's rough. And and we knew this. We said this all along when people were saying you have to put an asterisk on this year's Cup winner because of of the format. We knew that no teams coming out of the qualifying round were going to run the table. It's just too hard with this condensed schedule, and for the most part, they're already gone. Yeah, it's probably it's probably a mix of both, right? It's probably both the the quality of the teams that are in the round robin as opposed to the qualifying round, and then you also have the advantages of not having to play the qualifying round. And even even the round robin games, um, you know, I, I can't speak for you guys, but I know me personally, I just don't think that they were that compelling or interesting because it's like who cares? They're all going to advance. You'd have to imagine that that sentiment at some level is is there even within the teams themselves. They're not going to be hitting as hard and maybe putting as much strain on their body and they're playing fewer games and probably have more practice time. So it's probably all the above. 
Yeah, it was, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, there there was a couple of those round robin games, really, really just Colorado Vegas, where there was like an edge to it, and at that point, it was the last one of them, and it was to see who's going to be the number one seed. But for the most part, teams were rotating goalies and kind of working stuff out, and, and essentially they got instead of one exhibition game to ramp up for this uh, this tournament, they kind of got four games to ramp up for the tournament, which is huge coming off a four month layoff. I am a little disappointed that we did not get a seven game series. I really wanted to see it in the Vancouver St. Louis series, but. That one sort of went out with a whimper after being probably the best series of the first round. So hopefully we will get one of those in the next couple of rounds. How much yeah. do you guys think it, it benefits the NHL as a whole that if they're able to get through these playoffs relatively quickly? I think it's it's big, right? I mean, th- th- there was originally there wasn't even going to be a game tonight, but because all these series are over, they can have teams. I, I don't think they want players just sitting around for four or five, six days waiting for the next round to start in the middle of a bubble. I mean, at a certain point, the family's not there. You know, it's it's going about as well as you could ask, but I don't think they want guys sitting around with, with a huge break between each round. That Rick Tockett quote keeps ringing in my head where he said, you know, you can, you're can you starting to be able to tell certain guys don't want to be here anymore. And I know he was saying it in reference to his team, and I don't even know if that was necessarily true. It was just they weren't playing well. But, if, you know, he's in the bubble all day, every day. He's not only seeing his team, he's seeing other guys too. And you have to figure what they've been in there now for basically a month. If you're going to win the Stanley Cup, you're going to be in there for another month and a half. I mean, that that is a long time. Yeah, it's rough. I, I actually spoke to Mike Van Ryan, the assistant coach for the St. Louis Blues today for another story I'm working on. And he talked about just what a drain it was on you, just sort of psychologically, uh, Energy-wise, just being stuck in there every day, there, there are only so many options for you. And, and look, you're there, you're a professional, you have to focus on your job, but it does get a little dull, a little hard. It's just Groundhog Day every day, as he said. So it definitely can be draining on the guys. I don't think it's had a negative impact on the play yet, though, do you? No, I wouldn't say so. I, I, I think the play's getting better, actually. And, and I think we expected that, you know, after they, they worked off some of the rust, that we'd see higher quality play. And I think we are seeing that now. You mentioned it. Not one series went seven games. Vancouver, St. Louis, like you said, was the one that seemed to have the most potential. I got to say, I thought Dallas Calgary would go seven too. And that one didn't go out with a whimper, but it, it was a very strange end to a series where Calgary gives up seven unanswered to get eliminated. Um, yeah, I, it, only one first or one qualifying round series went five games. So we haven't really seen that ultra competitive series yet go the distance. I'm hoping we're going to see that here. I think we probably are. These four series are all compelling in their own ways, and, and we'll get to them in a, in a second. But um, anything else big picture, and then we'll start with the Coyotes. I guess we should we should at least mention the Marc-Andre Fleury thing. Yeah, Alan Walsh's agent tweeted uh, a fascinating meme. I, I, don't, I don't know what to make. <laughs> with a sword through his back, like they stabbed him in the back. Yeah which was just crazy to see. Uh, but if you know Alan Walsh, uh, that doesn't surprise you that he would do something like that. But I thought it was a little tasteless. And it, it, I guess uh, Elliot Freeman re- reached out to a bunch of sources. They're going to meet with Fleury, and they're, they're promising this will not be a distraction moving forward. I wouldn't expect it to be with Marc-Andre Fleury anyway. It, it's just the agent that made a distraction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I think this is one of those – typically you would look at this and you'd say, okay, if the agent's doing that, his player must be complaining to him a lot. But with Flurry, I don't necessarily see that. He's he's been in this sort of secondary one B goalie role for Stanley Cup runs before. And let's be honest, it's not like Leonard's been playing amazing hockey. If you're Flurry, you know there's a pretty good chance you're getting back in there at some point. So I, I I don't I don't think this is him speaking through his agent, but it is sort of a weird look. 
uh, heading into a, all of a sudden a very competitive series of Vancouver. This is Alan Walsh, too, so I, I would not be surprised at all if he were driving this and not Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, all right, let's get into these uh, series, and let's start with the Coyotes. And we're obviously going to spend more time on this one. Uh, I guess I'll begin here, and we can take whatever direction you guys want. Those two games that the Coyotes played, if you want to call that playing in them, in games four and game five, uh, were their worst games of the season, even statistically. They were their two most lopsided losses. So I don't totally know how to look at this team now. Because if you just take a step back and you say, okay, everything that happened, the injury to Kemper, the the four-month break or whatever – They were close to a playoff spot. They had a chance to play their way into that playoff spot and they did. And they got there in that respect. I would look and say this, this, there was progress this year. My concern the other way though, is it's hard to watch the way they played in that Colorado series and not think that's their ceiling as they're currently constructed. Yeah. To me, whoever the new GM is when he comes in, that has to be a question you ask. You can't, you can't overreact and make decisions based on two games. That's too small a sample. At the same time, the way they went out, the way they lacked compete level in those two games and absolutely got boat raced in those last two games, the gulf between them and the avalanche, that was disturbing. And you have to ask as a, as a GM, why did that happen? What's going on with this roster, with this coaching staff, with our philosophy that that was – able to happen because there were other teams that were overmatched in, in, in playoff series, but they didn't go out the way the Coyotes did. So that's troubling. You, you at least have to examine that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think one thing that you have to consider about the Coyotes too, is when, when you look at the last two games of that series, it obviously is alarming, but even back during the, the hiatus and we're sitting around twiddling our thumbs, I'm thinking, where is this going? Where are the Coyotes heading and and, I mean you consider their cap sheet if the goal when you're a cap team is well hopefully we make the playoffs this year well that's not ideal when you're basically spinning at the cap and then you consider well Taylor Hall coming back is going to be a challenge they have some really good veterans the the Demers the Stepons the Yalmersons but those guys when they got here two three years ago they probably would have ideally gotten here at the time in their careers that they were three years ago at the time that Keller and Schmaltz and Dvorak and those guys are in their career now, meaning these guys are probably aging a little too soon as some of these younger guys are getting better a little too late and the timing's not there. And so to me, you have guys on expiring deals. You have veterans that aren't getting any younger. And then you add in the fact that they get blown out in embarrassing fashion in the last two games of the season. And the captain who is on a contract that's paying him a lot of money and just getting underway and doing so, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough, especially he was asked about leadership of the group and just kind of brushed it off. And that's not to say it's OEL's fault, but you got to scratch your head and say, why are you just completely absent of the details in the two most important games of your season? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I understand the frustration there at the end of the season. I mean, I had it too. I don't know if, if people thought this team was, if they expected them to win the cup or what, I mean, at a certain point they were going to get eliminated the way they were constructed But what's frustrating to me is you can have a bad game four and Colorado might very, Colorado might just roll right through Dallas too. Colorado might win the cup. We may look back and say, okay, it makes a little more sense. I don't understand how you have a bad game five after you got embarrassed in game four. That doesn't mean you have to come out and win game five. I expect them to come out and play their best game of the series. And and that might not have been enough. They may still have lost four, three or four, two or whatever, but to lose seven, one again. And as weird as it sounds, seven, one, it's, the game was actually like not even as close as the score looked. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I have to believe that off of that, even though we don't know who the GM is, there's going to be some changes around here. Look, I don't think Brad Richardson and Carl Soderberg are coming back, but I think they're going to try and move even more contracts than that. Compounding the trouble for them, at least for one season, is the flat cap. How are you going to move some of these veterans with one year left on their deal off when so many teams are facing a cap crunch? That's a real challenge for the new GM. Like I said, at least for one season, because after that, the Coyotes' cap situation really clears up and they have a ton of flexibility moving forward, which was John Chica's original plan with all these veterans sort of shepherding the young core to NHL maturity. But it's going to be a really tough offseason for this team to try and make improvements or even to try and cut back and say, okay, we're going to start a rebuild. You might not be able to do that for one season because you might not be able to unload these contracts. Do you think a rebuild is is necessary, though? I mean, they did – this was a step forward this year. I, I, where did we expect them to finish this season at the beginning of the year? I, I expected them to make the playoffs. I'm not sure I expected them to, to win a round in the playoffs yet. Again, though, I'm not asking that to try and lead you guys in one, one direction or the other. I, I do look at this team and say, I think they're a playoff team next year. And if they lose, if they play Colorado in the first round next year, they're going to lose again next year. They could be a playoff team again next year. But what, what do you, when you look at this roster, what are the holes? They're, they're some of the same holes that we've been identifying for a while. And, and granted, we don't know what Barrett Hayton's going to be yet. And they're putting a lot of hope in him being a number one center. We haven't seen really anything to indicate that he's going to be that guy yet. If Barrett Hayton pans out, sure, that helps a lot. If Victor Soderstrom pans out and becomes a power play quarterback, that helps a lot. But you're pinning your hopes on a couple guys now that – you don't know yet. So, so what do you do as a new GM coming in? Do you, do you think, okay, I'm just going to bide my time for one season and see what happens? Maybe that's what you have to do anyway. Or do you say we need to try and strip this down and acquire some more talent through the draft, which you can't do in 2020 anyways because you don't have a first or third round pick? Two things for me on that too. Number one is there's kind of this premise that there's this young core in place and, and it's established and it's what the coyote is needed and that's what they planned and that's what they built. But I think it's fair to ask is Clayton Keller, Christian Dvorak, Nick Schmaltz, Christian Fisher, Jacob Chikrin, is that core good enough? And I don't think that that's unfair to ask or to pick on those guys. And, and you also have to remember too, I mean, before the whole restructuring in the playoff format, when, when the season went on hiatus, the coyotes were not in playoff position. I mean, imagine if they had missed the playoffs. What kind of conversation would we be having? I mean, to me, I think if you're you're a Coyotes fan or observer of this team, you have to be pretty dang concerned that the team almost missed the playoffs in a year that they got Phil Kessel, Taylor Hall, had Darcy Kemper, and the young core, quote-unquote, was in place. Yeah, I want to come back to that, but go ahead and say what you were going to say, Luke. Well, just in terms of what you were saying the holes are on this team, I mean, to me, obviously the number one center, which – you know, we're at the point now where Chike is not the GM anymore, so it's easy to just look and say this was all Chike's fault. But he never had an opportunity to get a number one center. So I, I, to me, that, that's – I mean, you have to draft that guy or get a get Peter Chiarelli to trade that guy to you. Right? That's not something you can just do. Which would be but, tough if it becomes the GM, but go ahead. <laughs> um, but there were areas on this on this team that, that got exposed this season that I think are fixable. The power play, it's not that they weren't scoring. They were – I don't know how you can have such a complicated looking power play that isn't creative and was very predictable by the end. And I made this comment to somebody in the press box. I think it was game three or game four where the coyotes on the power play couldn't even get in the zone. It was like the blue line was an actual wall and they didn't know how to get around it. 
Colorado's just skated in. You never even realized there was a blue line. You just skate in and then you kind of set stuff up. So I'm not a power play expert, but what I saw from the Coyotes, it's not that they weren't scoring. It's that they weren't even getting set up. And, and when they did, it was like this, I don't know if this falls on the coaches as much as the players, when they got set up, they just passed around the perimeter. Like you got points for passing. Whereas Colorado, and I know that's an extreme example, but watch other teams in these playoffs. When they make passes on the power play, there's a reason they're making the pass. It's getting the puck closer to the net, not just passing back and forth. There was one play where Stepan essentially had his back to the net and was just passing back and forth with Keller 40 feet away from the goal. That doesn't do anything. Yeah. And this, this to me, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because this comes back to elite skill for me. What does Colorado have in in terms of gaining zone entries under control? They have elite skill. They have players who can carry the puck through the middle of the ice and gain the zone. The Coyotes don't have that. Phil Kessel and even Taylor Hall aren't that guy. They're more wings that need to go. So you need to play through the middle of the ice And, and getting back to this power play. I've had a bunch of people reach out to me and say, it is clear that Rick Tockett's Power play does not work. He does not know how to coach a power play. Well, let's go back to Pittsburgh, shall we? Because who was coaching the power play in Pittsburgh? It was Rick Tockett when they won yeah. Stanley Cups. What was the difference? He had elite talent. He had elite skill. He had Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. So when you have the personnel, you can run this. Does that mean that they need to tweak the power play and run a different system? Maybe so. Maybe they need to look at that. But to me, the greater issue here is the personnel. Because we watched Oliver ekman Larson, Taylor Hall, and Phil Kessel try to work it out uh, as being the three guys up top, and they just never developed any kind of chemistry. And what's crazy, as lopsided as that series looks now in retrospect, if the Coyotes do anything on the power play in game one, that game was tied with seven minutes left. They might win game one, and they did not deserve to win game one. If they do anything on the power play in game two, I believe they went 0 for 4 and ended up losing that game 3-2 on a late Burakovsky goal. You can make a strong case they could have won any or all three of the first three games if they did anything on the power play, which is insane looking back now at how good Colorado ultimately was. Yeah. Going back to Matt's point about the core, that's another really important question for the new GM to ask because this postseason didn't really offer us much on any of those players other than Clayton Keller, who I thought played pretty well. To me, Clayton Keller showed enough in this postseason that it looks like he's moving forward. I thought this was encouraging for him in spite of those last two games where nobody played well. He did a lot of things in this postseason. He produced points, which they need him to do. So that's encouraging for Clayton Keller. But you didn't get to see Nick Schmaltz play because he was injured the whole time. Christian Dvorak had a separated shoulder the entire time, so we don't know what he can do. Uh, a couple of you know, a couple of the other guys are role players like Fisher or, or Lawson Kraus. They are what they are. But then Jacob Chikrin really took a step back in this postseason. He looked lost, to be honest, and that's concerning. That's a guy that they have to work a lot with this summer because he is a critical piece of your blue line uh, for the future. The Chikrin one, though, that surprised me in a big. I mean, he. This is where it's tough because the season was so disjointed, and we're looking at a small sample size in these playoffs. What was it? Nine games the Coyotes played. I'm not worried about Chikrin big picture, but he didn't have a good playoff. It almost goes the other way with Keller. I I like what I saw from him in the playoff. To me, that doesn't absolve him of disappearing for months at a time during the regular season in the past, only because of how much he makes. And that's, that's what's concerning to me potentially about this core. I don't want this to be a totally negative podcast, but they just got eliminated. So we're looking here for, for potential holes. Again, Colorado is an extremely good team. Where does Clayton Keller rank? If he's on Colorado, he's their sixth or seventh best player the way the Coyote's salary is structured, you're essentially asking him to be your best player. 
So how far can you go if Clayton Keller is your best player? That's my concern. He's got good hands around the net. He's a good passer. If you put him in position, I mean, he was one of the few guys that wasn't afraid to shoot when he had a chance and he was hitting the net. He's a very good player. But for what you're paying him, you're, I mean, you're paying him, what, almost a million and a half more per year than Nathan McKinnon is getting now going forward. So you need him to produce even when the situation around him isn't perfect. He's got to be able to carry the puck into the zone on the power play because you're paying him enough to do everything. So you're not paying him that much yet. To me, you can't judge him that way until next season. But again, everybody looks at Chaika now and they're like, oh, he shouldn't have traded for Hall. He shouldn't have traded for Kessel. He shouldn't have signed Dvorak. The only one, because I'm not going to change my stance on those. If I liked them at the time, I'm not going to retroactively change my opinion. But the one, and, and Craig can vouch for this, and I think you were on the same page, and I know Jamie was, the Keller deal, that's the biggest risk he took. Not because you re-signed him, it's how much you paid him. You paid him as a complete player, and we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that one felt premature to me. And then, I mean, going back to, uh, I like, again, I, I think there's something to build on with Clayton Keller. I think that this kind of postseason performance, in spite of the way it ended, can give him some confidence that he can perform on the highest stage. So sure. at least there's something to build on there. Um, and again, Chikrin, I think, has the right attitude, the right skill set. I think they can work with him and get him there and figure it out. I still think defense is the hardest position to play in this game, and he's really young, so... I'm, I agree. I'm not all that worried because I saw a lot of progress from him all season. But those two trades you mentioned, I mean, I still think they rushed things a little bit. I, they didn't have the right pieces in place to say, okay, yeah, it's time to go for it by getting Phil Kessel and Taylor Hall. They wanted more scoring, and obviously Rick Tockett was a big part of the Phil Kessel um, acquisition, and that didn't pan out at all. But with Taylor Hall, if you remember, if you go back, and context is very important. When people do analysis, they often ignore a lot of factors and a lot of the context. They were in first place when they acquired Taylor Hall. They were playing pretty well. So at that point, John Chike, if you remember what he said, he said this group has they've, – they've earned the right – to maybe take a, take it a step further. They've earned the right to acquire a player like this. And so they went and got him. And then Darcy Kemper gets hurt. Everything goes south. And you can judge it. You know, you have hindsight now and say, well, that was that was too soon. And I, I still think it was too soon because of the pieces they had in place. But I understood John Tyka's thinking at the time. Well, and as far as the cap is concerned, I, I just think, you know, when he when Chaika re-signed Clayton Keller, it was a risk. I mean, you're, you're investing a lot of money in a guy who necessarily hasn't put up that kind of production in, in respect to the dollar amount that you're giving him. But he said, you know, it's a gamble because we don't want him to eventually be a 60, 70, 80 point a year guy. And now we've got to pay him eight or nine million a year instead of seven. So he's trying to get a guy on a team friendly deal based on projection, which is probably what he had to do when you don't get to draft McDavid and Dreisaitl and guys like that. Yeah. So, so he's trying to, he's trying to take a gamble and do the high risk, high reward thing, which is admirable or whatever, whatever your opinion is on it is one thing, but I just think those guys are really the catalyst and, and it's not whether or not they re-sign Taylor Hall. It's not whether or not Phil Kessel comes back next year and scores 50 goals. To me, the catalyst for the success of this team going forward is that core. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. And the other thing I would say with Chaika is, you know, we would all be complaining if he was letting players they took in the first round two or three years ago get away. So for him to go out there and, and make sure, you know, he did what he could to, to resign those guys, I think you have to do that. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that you're not open to some criticism too. And again, with, with Keller, we just, we, it's, it's not just Keller, it's any of those guys. I, I think, I guess the best way to put it is if the Coyotes are going to go on a run and they're going to make the playoffs and they're going to go two or three rounds deep. And I'm just talking about skaters. I'm not talking about Kemper here. 
I don't think the best player on your team is on your team right now. That, to me, was the most troubling part about the playoffs. I just don't see them going on a run through two or three rounds through some of the best teams and us saying, oh, yeah, you know, Nick Schmaltz did this or Clayton Keller did this, and, and they carried them. I think those guys are, are good, not role players and not even secondary scorers, but they're not the guys that are going to drive you. It comes back to that same conversation we always have. You need a true number one center. It's like Matt said, you know, Chica didn't have the luxury of drafting Nathan McKinnon or Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews or any of these guys with the first overall pick. That makes a huge difference. If you put McDavid on the Coyotes and put, what, Strom, so I guess now Nick Schmaltz on the Oilers, If that, I mean, if we just make that trade, the Coyotes are probably still playing. In fact, they were probably playing pretty deep last year, too. They might have even been in the Cup. It's funny how people color these things, too, isn't it? You, you, you don't realize how much that player not only impacts the top line and, and driving possession, but how it allows everybody else to slot into their roles. It, it's so important to have that guy at the top of the lineup. And I agree with you. When you look at this team right now, the only player that is worthy of being a top-line player is the guy who's probably leaving in free agency, Taylor Hall. And, and that's not, again, it's not to diminish those other guys, but if you have a second line with Keller and Dvorak and Schmaltz or however you want to do it, however you want to configure that line, that's a, that's a, a very good second line with the potential to get better and better. It's just you're asking guys, I think, to play a little bit above their head, and it doesn't necessarily matter in the regular season. I do think this is a playoff team again next year, depending what sort of changes we see this offseason, obviously. You still have Kemper, though, and now you have a lot of young players that have some playoff experience. But if they're taking a step each year, and you can make the argument they have each of the last three or four years, the next step is making a deeper playoff run. You're missing a piece there. The other thing, and I don't know where you guys come out on this, but I don't – I don't buy into the whole old school thinking if you got to be a big, physical, brutal team to go deep in the playoffs. But we have seen the Coyotes have a difficult time when teams get physical with them in the past. The Coyotes, I mean, I don't know if there's a site that measures this, but they have to be one of the smallest teams collectively in the NHL. And when you play in the Western Conference, if you're going to go into a seven-game series with Vegas or Dallas or Calgary or St. Louis – or even as we saw Colorado, I mean, Nikita Zadorov just took half the team and threw them into the wall in games four and five. I don't know that you can just radically change your team for that, but I wouldn't have minded somebody at least being more physical on defense because we watched the Coyotes let whoever Colorado wanted to set up in front of the net, usually Nazem Kadri, just stand right in front of Kemper, and nobody even really hit him. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I don't like labeling teams soft. And I think there are ways to combat it if you have the high-end skill to combat it. I mean, the Blackhawks won three cups, and they were not a physical team by any stretch. But yeah. they had elite, elite offensive talent, so they could make you pay for playing that style of game. But the Coyotes don't have those players, so I do think that they need a little bit more of a phys- physical presence. They could use a guy on defense. They could use a guy who's a, a net front guy, a la, you know, Matthew Kachuk, who can, can make things happen around the opposing net. Now, I thought... Lawson Krause would be a little more physical presence than he has been uh, on the forward group. And that's, that may be something that they want to stress with him a little bit more. I think he could play that game. And on, on the blue line, maybe Ilya Labushkin uh, develops into that sort of player. He does have that physical element. We didn't see him at all in this postseason. I understood why against Colorado because of their speed, but yeah. he may be a guy that develops into that role too. But that's another thing that I absolutely agree they have to take a look at. Just because, unfortunately, in the Colorado series, to me, that really turned what you could see Colorado, even at points in game one, actually, but certainly in games four and game five. What are you eating? Is this a KFC? 
My wife just dropped canes in front of me, so oh, well, you guys can watch me eat canes. I'll, I'll mute so you have, don't have to listen to me chew. Oh, well, but thanks so much for that. Um, <laughs> no, I just you could see a certain point of that series change when Colorado realized if we just go to the net and keep hammering Kemper for rebounds, and Nazem Kadri was, was obviously the lead guy, but he wasn't the only one. If we just keep hammering at the puck and going right to the net, we're going to score. And that's how they ultimately solved him. And honestly, you can solve any goal in the NHL if you can just put one or two or three guys in front of him and just keep hammering at any rebound until it goes in. That's The Coyotes didn't lose that series because Kemper got solved, but they lost that series because they couldn't clear anybody out in front of him. And then obviously they couldn't, they couldn't counterattack. So, well, and you know what the irony about that is too, is how many times did Rick Tockett say all season long that he wanted his own team to do that? Yeah. I mean, when, when he, when we would ask him after games, Rick, how come you, your team didn't score more goals? The answer was, we need somebody to go to the net. We need somebody to go to the net. You need to hack and whack. You need to create a rebound. We can't turn the puck over with a, with a shot or a missed shot. He's been preaching on that all year long. And, uh, and then, Ironically enough, that's what kills him in, against Colorado. Yeah, and I thought, again, I thought we'd see it from Kraus. I thought Carl Soderberg could be that guy. I thought there were a few guys that could play that role, and yeah. they just didn't against Colorado. But, of course, you look at the, the offensive zone time they had, they, they really didn't have the opportunity. Oh, you had time to, to stop eating canes to be able to make that point right there? Yeah, I'm going to go back to it now, though. Okay. Well, uh, I, I was, was going to I was gonna ask Craig, Craig and Luke a question, but uh, Craig is continuing to eat his meal. Luke, uh, how much do you think the Coyotes' uh, lack of success against Colorado was because of foot speed in particular? I mean, do you think do you think some of the Coyotes' shortcomings or mistakes got compounded by the fact that they're trying to catch up with a fast Colorado team? Yeah, I hope that's not the case because the Coyotes are supposed to be a fast team. And again, I think we're going to have better context when we see just how deep Colorado goes into these playoffs. And not like if they win the Stanley Cup, that absolves the Coyotes. But it does put things into a little more perspective than if Colorado goes out there and gets smoked in four games by Dallas, which they won't. But, I mean, I think there is something, too. We may look back on this Colorado team, and I said this on one of the broadcasts, not to compare them to the Chicago Blackhawks who won three cups or the Pittsburgh Penguins who won three cups in, in a similar time frame. But there was a point for each of those two teams where it's like, yeah, they haven't won a cup yet, but look at this guy that's starting to drag them, and you can tell that they're, they're eventually going to. McKinnon kind of looked like that in that series. Colorado is a loaded team. I think it was just more a matter of the Coyotes just look disjointed. And, and I don't know if, if the break would have – if the break doesn't happen, if they push it to six games or what. But Colorado is clearly the better team. And I, and I would say this, the last two things I'll say about the Coyotes. One, this is not a team that, that plays the way Rick Tockett played when, when he was a player. So that goes back to you saying, okay, you know, we, we expect guys to go to the net. That's how we're going to score goals. Or we expect this out of Lawson Krause. The Coyotes don't play the way Rick Tockett played. So I just I can't help but wonder if that leads to some of his frustration late in, the, in that series. And the other thing is, as far as those trades, I would have still made the Hall trade, even now. I, we haven't seen the Coyotes or a lot of teams in this town, but especially the Coyotes go out there and go for it. Like Craig said, they were in first place. Kemper was the best goalie in the league. He got hurt like a week later, or not even a week later, and that changed everything. The Kessel one, Jamie and I both said this when they made it, and I, I came at it from the perspective of watching the Penguins very closely. He's not the same player anymore, and there's a reason Pittsburgh had already tried to trade him to Minnesota, and then he wouldn't go, so they traded him here. Um, I, I thought he'd be a lot better than this. I still think he can be next year, but I, I don't know what you can really, truly expect from him. Whereas Hall, I know it didn't work out ultimately if he leaves now, but they made that trade with the intention of going for it this year and keeping him, but at the time they – 
I think, planned on keeping their GM, too. Getting back to Matt's question about speed, I, I think where you find the Coyotes' speed, I do think they're one of the faster teams in the league, but it's on the flanks. It's their wings that bring the speed. I don't think they have speed through the middle of the ice, especially when Nick Schmaltz isn't in the lineup. You've got you've got some slow-footed centers, to be honest, and, and that's a problem when you're trying to create through the middle of the ice. And their defense isn't that fast either. Other than Jacob Chikrin, who do you look at now and say, yeah, that guy's a real burner. He can beat people up ice. They don't have that guy either. So, I mean, I, again, I think this goes back to play through the middle of the ice more than anything. I think it colors so much of what you see, and I don't think people realize just how much it impacts everything that the Coyotes do when they don't have that element. How different do you think everybody feels about the Coyotes right now if Nick Schmaltz never got hurt? And maybe it's not any different, because my thought is, looking at Colorado the way they played, Nick Schmaltz doesn't swing that series by any means. But it would have been nice to see what he could do in the playoffs because that is, that's your speed up the middle. That's where I am. I, I just would have liked to be able to evaluate yet another young player in this situation. And I thought, in some respects, the the matchup benefited Nick Schmaltz. It, it played to his skill set. So I don't think he was a cure-all. I don't think it would have made a difference in the series. But he might have been able to make some plays and we might have been able to get a better sense of what he's capable of. Well, and Rick Tockett complained, I think, in the final press conference uh, after that series about how much he had to play Derek Stepan. I mean, if you have another top six center in the lineup that you intended to have going into that postseason, it, like Craig said, it might not have made a difference in whether the Coyotes got eliminated, but it might have at least made a difference in the compete level, how many minutes guys are playing. And it's the same thing with, like, the top-line center you guys were talking about earlier, the McDavid's of the world. It's not just that McDavid is really good at hockey. It's that he plays a ton of minutes for his team, and it takes a big load off of some of the other players. The other thing, too, I guess we should mention, the Coyotes took a lot of penalties towards the end of that series. And uh, what they were Colorado was three for seven in game four, and then they gave up three more power play goals. I think Colorado was three for four in game five. But especially in game four, you, know, you go into game four, you, you won game three, and you, fair or not, whether you should have been or not, you were very close in, in games one and two. They were tied late in the third period, both of them. You figure if you win game four, all of a sudden it's a best of three. And even if Colorado's the better team, you have the better goalie. And and you've won two in a row. I mean, who knows? So for them to go out there and take seven penalties in, in game four, it's sort of to your point right there, Matt. Like your best players, your Taylor Halls, your Clayton Kellers, they're not on the ice when you're killing penalties for a quarter of the game. Yeah, it ruins your rhythm. It ruins so much. And, and Rick Tockett talked about that as well. It's one of those things where he, when he looked at the games – he just couldn't figure out what was going out there, what what guys were thinking, because that was the game plan. And I look, people want to lay a lot of this at Rick Tockett's feet, and and coaching certainly plays a role. But when you lay out a game plan and your guys don't follow it at all, <laughs> you're not going to have much of a chance to win. And and by the way, what, what happened to their PK in the postseason? Because it wasn't very good. And no. he kept saying, you know, it's a small sample. I get that. You can look bad for stretches, but that's what the postseason is. It's a small sample, and your strengths of your team have to show up in those small samples or you've got no chance. Yeah, that was very very troubling to me that a team that prides itself and is good at defense and goaltending and penalty killing gave up 14 goals in the final two games of the series, many of them on the power play. I mean, it was just like it, all these mistakes compounding on one another or all these shortcomings compounding on one another. Uh, one another. And that final game of the series – they took a bunch of penalties. I think they took three or four penalties in the first period. Colorado scored on two of them. Now you got guys that are penalty killing. It was just, it was very, very, very troubling. And it seems to me that when you have a strength of your team, that's not even a, a factor in the final two games, 
I think is it is it fair? I'll ask you guys: Is it unfair for me to suggest that the players were not giving one hundred percent? Is that fair? I think they were just rattled, honestly. I mean, that, that, that fifth game, like I said, I really expected them to come out and play their best game of the series, and maybe it wouldn't have been enough. And the first, what, four minutes, five on five, the first four minutes, they actually looked a lot better than they did at any point in game four. They had a little bit of pressure. They were at least in Colorado's zone. They were starting off better, and you got a sense, okay, maybe, maybe this will be a, a close game, and you either win 4-3 or you lose 4-3. And then Chikrin flips the puck into the, the the seats. They took another penalty. I think it was Grabner for hooking. And then too many men on the ice, which uh, no penalty angers a coach more than too many men on the ice. Rick Tockett told us before the playoffs, which I forget who asked him, but somebody was like, hey, what? how are we going to know if your team is is playing good hockey, if they're ready to go? You know, what are we looking for as as broadcasters? And the first thing he said was clean line changes. And so in a weird way, it's it's – it's ironic, I guess, that that's not what was their undoing. But I thought they came out and looked okay in the first period. They just took three penalties. Colorado at that point was scoring pretty much every power play. Yeah, that's where I am, too, on the, the narrative of did they quit. On very rare occasions have I seen professional athletes quit in any sport. I think what happens is you get a little discouraged. You get a little rattled by the other team. And that combination of factors leads to a psychological edge. And, and in this game, when you have an edge on a team like that, it me- it makes a world of difference. And I, I really think it showed up against Colorado in those last yeah. two games. And I don't, I mean, I don't think the Coyotes quit either, but it is, I mean, again, it is like a hundred percent. Are you playing at your best? Are you playing ready? Are you being, are you able to shake off some of those things that are happening to you? I mean, one of the things Rick talk had talked about either before the series or beginning was how important it was to get numbers back and, and to, to be able to defend against some of these guys that are going to be coming at you at full speed full speed, full steam ahead. There was one goal. I think it was the third goal in the last game where the Coyotes were trying to pass a breakout pass up to the neutral zone, turn the puck over, and all five guys are way up in the neutral zone when the puck's going the other way. Nazem Kadri had half an hour to score a breakaway goal. I mean, it's just things like that where it's like, are you even engaged anymore? It's not that you don't care. It's not that you quit, but are you engaged? Are you focused on what you have to do? And why is it that we're – you know, it was the 80th or whatever game that they'd played this season. And you're not on the details of your game. I you're mean, not responding Rick to pressure. Yeah. 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 You're not, you're not on the details of the game. Like, why not? You why know, not? It, it, to Craig's point on that being discouraged. I mean, I, I've played hockey on much lower levels, obviously, but I've been on those, on those teams where you're just running over another team and you can see they look rattled. I've also been on the team that is just getting blown out and, you, and you're looking around and you're still trying and everything and you're just like, this. The, our opponent is so much better than us. But what's strange is you never see that at the NHL level outside of like a Red Wings game. You just And you don't expect to see it in the playoffs. And what was really strange about it is the Coyotes, all three of those first three games were winnable. And so that's – it just – it flipped so quickly. And I don't know about you guys. And, again, I, I mean, a big picture, I see this as a step forward this season. But there are now questions, certainly, with not having a GM and the way it ended. But what was really just – gut-wrenching was to see Darcy Kemper not even get to be out there to end the season the way he played. And I completely agree with Rick Tockett pulling him because he didn't deserve to be out there and just getting hammered. But it's like, how, how does this season end where you can't even have your best player and maybe the best goalie in the NHL out there because it's gotten so bad in front of him? Yeah. I mean, you said it, Luke, the first three games were winnable. The Coyotes played the avalanche twice in the regular season, won one of the games, went to overtime in the other one. So when the narrative is, well, Colorado is just so much better than Arizona, 
it's not that it's not true because it is true, but it's not the complete truth. And I think there just has to be some acknowledgement by that, uh, of that, that it's not just that Colorado is seven to one better than Arizona because it's not the case. And you have to answer for why that happened. Yeah, it's a good point. So much better in the NHL is not six goals, not, not in back-to-back games, not between playoff teams. All right, let's get to some of these other games while Craig eats his chicken. Um, Vegas and Chicago, to me, was one of the more entertaining series. That It didn't have a ton of drama in it, but I just really like watching Vegas play hockey. And Chicago sets, <laughs> sets any team up to, to look good offensively. Craig put it in the notes. Uh, Vegas-Colorado is – I don't know how you're not pulling for that conference final unless you are specifically a fan of Vancouver or Dallas at this point. Yeah, that's 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 a series. To be honest, that could be the series that decides the cup winner. The way these two teams are playing right now, they're they're at the top of their game. I would love to see that series. I'm praying it happens. I, I can't imagine it not happening when I look at the opponents. But Dallas Dallas has shown me something in this postseason, specifically uh, balanced scoring. We'll get to that in a minute. But do we want to talk about the Blackhawks? Do I have yes. to talk about the Blackhawks? Yeah, okay, then but then just, we need just... to come back to Vegas after that because I have something very important to say about Vegas. Yeah, very important. Okay. Yeah. Here's what I'd say about the Blackhawks. Patrick Kane and Corey Crawford made this series competitive, but this outcome was inevitable, and I, I don't know that it did the Blackhawks any good to beat Edmonton. It's okay, I guess. We got to we got to see a couple of players that I think could be future really good players for the Blackhawks in, in Kirby Doc and, and Dominique Kubalik, who I didn't believe belonged among the finalists in the Calder Trophy voting when, when it initially came out. I thought one of the goalies belonged in there, but – Man, he had a terrific postseason. He he looks like a comer. So that's good. The, the Blackhawks have a, at least a couple pieces coming that look like they could be really good. And I like a couple of their young defensemen. It's not a surprise to me that the Blackhawks continue to find talent. They probably have the best scouting department in the NHL. But I don't really feel like, as Stan Bowman said, this is a step forward because your veterans are getting older still. Uh, Jonathan Taves looks slow in this series again. Uh, Duncan Keith looked really bad in this series, to be honest. So you have a lot of holes that still need to be filled in this organization. So to me, it feels like the Blackhawks are just going to be spinning their wheels for a few years. Yeah. Uh, Stan Bowman had a quote. I, this is from Charlie Romilly, Romilly Otis, if I didn't butcher that. We're going to have a similar group next season, not the same group. We're going to have some new faces, but I think fewer faces that are new to the Blackhawks. That's Stan Bowman saying that. I mean, they were a fun team to watch, but when you don't care if they win or lose, a fun team to watch means they've got some creative guys on offense, which we already knew, and they'll give up a ton of goals on defense. And that's essentially what they were. I mean, they were that in the Edmonton series. They were that in the Vegas series. And as far as Vegas in particular, and Craig, you put this in the notes too, to me, that's how the Coyotes need to be building their team, is the way Vegas never got the number one pick in the draft, obviously. In fact, I believe – if I'm remembering right, Nick Suzuki was their first ever draft pick, correct? And he's obviously in Montreal now. Um, now it's a little bit different. Obviously, they 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 were an expansion draft that that benefited the expansion team more than any other expansion draft ever has. But they also did it well, and they were smart about it. And it's not to me so much how they got there; it's just how the roster is constructed. Specifically, their forwards. Their defense isn't amazing, but they've got some physicality on defense, and they've got some decent players on defense. Their strength is obviously offense, but when you go through a lineup that has Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty and Paul Stastny, William Carlson and Riley Smith and Jonathan Marcheseau and Alex Tuck. Like, there's no weaknesses. You don't have a truly elite forward up there. It's a little extreme now because they were able to make trades for Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty. I get that, although right. Pacioretty had a career year this year. 
But that team where there's not really any weaknesses, they're not huge. They're not like slow and big, but nobody's really undersized either. And you can have one or two guys, but for the most part, everybody on the team can take care of themselves. They're all a threat to score every night. They're not all going to score. And some of them are going to go into a slump for a week or two here or there, but it's just a very solid team top to bottom up front. To me, the thing that you said earlier about them not having the number one center, but being able to sustain this sort of success is is kind of the model. Now, it it is apples to oranges in, in a way because they benefited so much from the expansion rules being what they were, and they aren't burdened by bad contracts that made it hard for them to make moves. So they have they're almost, they're almost born at the perfect time, right? Especially yeah. with this flat cap situation. So it's not a perfect comparison, but yeah, if the Coyotes want to. Look at a model that maybe works. Okay, maybe you can survive without that true number one center. I mean, Nashville did this for a short stretch too, right? Where you had good center play, but you didn't have that elite guy up the middle. Maybe you can do it that way. And if Vegas wins a cup without that guy at the top of the lineup, what a statement that would be because it it just doesn't happen very often. How much of it do you think is coaching? And that isn't to say that – that the players aren't responsible for what they've done on the ice. But, but I mean, Vegas has had two pretty well, well-respected coaches to start their franchise history. Have they not? Yeah, they have. I mean, Vegas has, has done a good job in that respect, but I, I think with them in particular, it, it's just, it's the way that roster is constructed. And, and I hear what you guys are saying in the sense of, okay, well, it, you know, they, they had, they had an easier path to maybe do that than, than other teams would have with the expansion draft and everything. I guess for me with the Coyotes more so going With the help forward, of the Florida Panthers. <laughs> well, the Panthers and Minnesota. Yeah, the Panthers yeah. especially, though. We said that at the time, just giving up March or so. And, but Minnesota, I mean, I, I don't even remember what their trade was, but they essentially gave them Tuck, and they gave them somebody else too, I thought. Um, but I guess it's more going forward for a team like the Coyotes. If you're never going to get the number one pick and be able to draft that truly elite player, I think Vegas is the way to build your team. Okay, Craig, I have to ask you this. In your notes, it has Eastern Conference and Western Conference. Oh, yeah. But, well, thanks. But, that was a typo. I was hoping nobody would notice. Okay. Well, I'm going to stick in the real Western Conference, not okay. Islanders and, uh, and, and Capitals like Craig has. Um, Canucks Blues. We touched on it earlier. This was the best series of the first round. Was it not? You, you just passed right over Riley Smith, huh? Another no, guy who was acquired, well, by the way. Yeah. yeah. 49 points in 53 playoff games. Can we talk about how incredibly good he is in the postseason? And did anyone see this coming for a guy who's moved? He's been moved twice now in his career, right? Yeah. Is it twice or is it more? It's, it's incredible. Wrong, but they got him from Florida too, didn't they? Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> Thank you, Florida. <laughs> Riley Smith has been fantastic. He is a money player. Riley Smith played for Dallas, Boston, and Florida before. Yeah, three teams. Years. That's right. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? That a guy can move that much and be – this money a player. I, you know, I'm sure there's a certain level of luck in it with Vegas and that they took guys that they saw potential in, and they've kind of all hit. There's not really a lot of guys that they went out there and got and they ended up not being amazing. But you just, you watch that team and you're like, okay, this line, oh yeah, anybody could score. Okay, here's their second line. Oh yeah, any of them are, th- okay, the third line. You know, it's just like, and then the fourth line does its job and occasionally chips in too. And that's just, it is a team that is not constructed like Colorado was or Edmonton or Pittsburgh and I still think, and we all picked them to go to the cup at the start of the year. I don't know why you wouldn't pick them now other than you feel Colorado. good about, yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, other, you feel good about somebody else. Uh, Vancouver and, uh, and St. Louis, hey, Craig, have you been keeping track of, of who got which series, right? This one might be the only one I got right. Actually. No, I'll post these a little later. I didn't, okay. I didn't want to drop this on you while, you know, while you're trying to record, I didn't want to do, uh, distract you. I didn't want to be a distraction. So mm, okay, I'll, po- well, I'll post the standings later. Okay. 
Well, this one, um, I don't remember who else took Vancouver. I just, from the second St. Louis won the cup last year, I've been saying on the show, they weren't winning again this year. And it's not to take away from what happened with them last year. A lot of things went right and they did everything right last year. They absolutely earned the cup. It's not like I thought that was a fluke, but they did not look like a team built to win two in a row uh, or even, even go deep. I mean, I I had them losing. I told you guys, even if they came back and beat Vancouver, I was going to pick against them in the next round. What, what stood out to me though Vancouver, there's no way they can be. They could ever be as good as their fans and their media think they are, but they are better than I thought they were. I agree, too, and, and the thing that jumped out at me, aside from the fact that Jacob Markstrom's a really good goaltender and he's earning himself a huge payday, Vancouver got really balanced scoring, and, and the talk even going into the series by their own media was that this is a team that is top six heavy, they haven't got the contributions from the bottom six all season long, and they don't defend well in their own end. So how are they going to manage that? Well, they had 10 players that scored goals in that series and 14 that had points. You look up and down that lineup, they really got secondary scoring. And that was a bit of a surprise, but probably a sign of growth for the Canucks. Can you, maybe, maybe I missed this. Um, what was the reasoning behind going back to Jordan Bennington for game six? If you look at their numbers, Bennington's were terrible, and everybody was talking about shooting low blocker side, which is exactly where um, Brock Besser scored on the power play against him last night. But more than that, his numbers were awful, and Jake Allen's were good. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, maybe they just thought because of what Bennington had done that Bennington had done, they could go back to him and, and try and recapture some of the magic. Uh, I mentioned to you guys earlier that I, that I spoke to Mike Van Ryan earlier today, and he just said – I think the, the bubble might have impacted St. Louis as much as anyone, or the, the pause, rather, because that team, if you remember, they, they were playing really well right at, at the pause. They felt like they had found their game. They were back to doing what they needed to do to, to be the team that won the cop. And then they had this long pause, and he said, we just we never could find it again. We never got even close to the game that we were playing at the pause. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, – that's probably a topic we should have after the uh, the playoffs too, after we see everything that happened, which which teams got hurt the most by the pause and which ones benefited because you're right. You would think you would think on paper like, hey, St. Louis all the way to the cup last year, the break maybe would have helped them to kind of, you know, get – a defending Stanley Cup champ never gets that break the following year, but yeah. they looked so much better before the pause than they did after. They really did, and uh, I, I mean – I, Ryan O'Reilly had a terrific series. He had a terrific postseason. And he, he fascinates me because when you consider where he started his career and, and what people were saying about him, he is an elite NHL player right now, and he brings it in the postseason. But when I look at St. Louis now, I agree with you. I wasn't going to pick him any round past this one. I just didn't think the Canucks were ready and had the depth or the experience to take out St. Louis. When I look at the trajectory for the Blues – I kind of feel like this is a one and done. I, I don't feel like this team is going to get anywhere close to a cup again. They, they have a lot of problems, uh, specifically age. I, I, don't, I don't see it happening. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I'm with you. I think, I mean, they're a team that should be a playoff team next year that I wouldn't necessarily want to play in the first round or whatever. They're always, I, I think at least for the next couple of years, they should be a threat in terms of you don't want to play them early in the playoffs, but I don't think you're ever going to see them late in the playoffs. I just think they're a good team. And that's it. Is there a threat of them becoming the next Minnesota? You know what I mean by that? Like, I don't mean that jokingly. I mean, just that team that's always like in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. I think they have better players at the top of their lineup, specifically O'Reilly. I think they're better up the middle of the ice than Minnesota has ever been. Minnesota is another one of those teams that is like the Coyotes. They've never been able to draft that number one center. But, you know, again, I think, I think age as much as anything is creeping up on the Blues. I just don't think that they have much of a window left here. 
Let's uh, let's get to that Flame Star series. This is one I picked Calgary to win. I, I don't remember who you guys took. I I didn't think I just I I, I bought into that narrative that. You know, much like St. Louis last year, if you remember, and even Washington the year before, there was sort of this talk of if they can't if they can't go on a run this year with this group, they're probably going to blow it up. And we saw Washington win the cup, thanks to Matt Murray. And we saw St. Louis win the cup. And we saw Calgary give up seven goals in, in a game six they had to have when they had a three nothing lead. Yeah. That's bizarre to me. I, I, look, this is an age old problem for Calgary to find goaltending in the postseason. It's been a problem ever since probably since Mika Kiprasov, right? I don't think yeah. they've had – it's just been a rotating cast of characters in goal, and nobody's been able to find it. Part of that is on the team, though, when you look at some of the problems Calgary had. Once again, their top line just didn't produce. Gaudreau, Lindholm, and Monaghan had a combined nine points and one at even strength. This was a storyline going into the postseason that these guys hadn't gotten it done in the postseason. And to me, you know, I, I'm, I'm here – I don't know if you guys saw this earlier today. I'm hearing some Sean Monaghan trade rumors already. I'd be very careful about acquiring a guy like that because to me, he still looks like a one dimensional player who plays the center ice position, but can't create offense. It's like others need to create offense for him. That's a problem for this team moving forward that he's not producing in these key situations. Yeah. You have to be wary of those players and it's very hard to, to be able to pick them out in in all situations because only certain situations show this as a weakness, but there, I mean, Sean Monaghan has great numbers, good, really good numbers throughout his career, but again, he had a great first series. Yeah. Yeah. But there is something to that. And and he's not the only one. And we've talked about other players on this podcast where it's, yeah, if everything's just right, they got a good shot or they're, you know, they're good and close to the net or if they're in the right position. But when you get to the playoffs, the the way I, I, I judge players in the playoffs is, there's adversity. Your team is down two nothing early, and but you're hanging in there. It's still good. Get, who's going to bring you back? And I don't know that Sean Monahan's that sort of guy that's going to bring you back. That's what was tough watching the Coyotes against Colorado's. You're looking around saying which which player is going to bring them back and drag them back in this key moment when everybody's watching. And there are certain teams that kind of seem to need to do it as a team. They don't have that individual player. Maybe Calgary is that team too. But I just think, you know, it's one thing for the Coyotes to make the playoffs. They're a young team. This is a step in the right direction in theory. Calgary has been getting here and losing in the first round, it seems like, forever. Yeah, it's another team that has never had that high draft pick, by the way. It's funny how that uh, narrative runs through a lot of these teams that can't, can't, maybe can get to the playoffs, but just can't go on any kind of run. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's head over to the East real quick, and then we'll do predictions and, and wrap well, let's, it up. Let's, let's just talk about Dallas for a little bit before we go, because Miro Heiskanen has, has emerged to me as one of the elite defensemen in the league. He's been absolutely brilliant in this postseason. Yeah. I would argue that he's been their best player in the playoffs, and that's a really good sign for a guy who's still that young. But I, when I look at Dallas's success, first of all, they also got balanced scoring, and this was a team that was struggling to score any goals when we were watching them earlier. Uh, You don't know how much stock to put in the round robin, but this is a team that struggled to score all year. But then when you think about the fact that they won the series without major contributions from Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, Alex Radulov, or Corey Perry, that's really a statement right there. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Dennis Guryanov had, what, four goals in that deciding game six. this This is why I love the playoffs, because we just saw them look so good offensively against Calgary. And we're going to see him play Colorado now. And it's like, maybe they keep that up. Maybe they take Colorado out. Or maybe Colorado just embarrasses them. But with Colorado, we don't know because we didn't see Philip Grubauer really get tested. So it's like, yeah. there's so much unknown, even though we just watched both of these teams play their respective series for two weeks. Um, okay, do you want to just do the Western Conference predictions right now? Let's do that. Okay. 
Let's do. Uh, let's start with Colorado Dallas. You have Jamie's predictions, right? And Matt, feel free to come in and, and be better than Jamie too, if you'd like. All right, we're starting with. You said Colorado and Dallas. Yeah, let's do that one. All right, I've got the Avalanche and six in this one. Okay. Jamie has the Avalanche and six as well. Yeah, I have them all. Okay. I also would have Avalanche and six. This is concerning. That was going to be my pick, and now I don't feel like I should change it. I'm I'm going to go Avalanche and six. I, I think that that's a team that we absolutely could see winning the cup this year. It's not just because they beat the Coyotes. Uh, it's it's because of how they looked in the round robin, how they looked all season, uh, and the fact that they have the best player that's left in this tournament and one of the two or three best players in the world on their team. And he kind of seems like he's on a mission, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Greg Wyshynski wrote a piece suggesting that Nathan McKinnon is the, perhaps the best player in the NHL. And I think there's a real argument to be made for that. I don't know what you guys think, but it, you know, it, it I, I don't want to name the coaches, but I talked to a couple coaches who told me they think it's easier to game plan for McDavid than it is for McKinnon. Because of, of McDavid's rest of his team or just his style of play? Style of play. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's definitely more of a conversation than some people realize. I think some people would just look and they say, well, McDavid, you know, he's amazing. Look at the number. Well, McKinnon's been a, a Hart Trophy finalist how many times now? He yeah. maybe should have won a couple years ago. He's not going to win this year, but you can make a case he should. And he does. He just plays a really good all-around game, and he makes his teammates better. Not to say McDavid doesn't. But yeah, he doesn't have right McDavid's there. speed. He doesn't have his speed, but man, he just wills his way to the net. He's, yeah, he's, got, he's got some I, speed though. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, if you're talking about best in terms of like the guy that's making the biggest differences in the game, or if it's based on pure talent, it, I guess it's how you define best. I, I think uh, Connor McDavid probably has a more like dynamic and, and unique and otherworldly skill set than Nathan McKinnon does, but there's more to hockey than just being physically gifted. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I think McKinnon's right there with McDavid, but I think we're more likely to see another player that resembles McKinnon in the next five, six years than we are McDavid. I don't think we're going to see another McDavid for 20 years. Just the way, just the way he plays hockey. So we're all taking the abs and six. Yep. All right. Let's uh, let's Vegas. Vancouver is, I, this is the series where I'm not, no matter what's going on, I'm going to make sure I don't miss any of these games. I agree with you. And that's, it's interesting in spite of their sort of Boston level obnoxious fan base. I've really enjoyed watching Vancouver play in this postseason, And I'm, I'm kind of getting on board with wanting to see this team play more because they are an exciting team. There, there are, there's some wonderfully skilled players to watch. So I kind of hope this series goes a little longer, but I, I don't know. I, I think Vegas is built for the postseason. I think they'll take Vancouver out in six games as well. Okay. I have Vegas in seven. I do think that. And actually, if I'm Vegas, I'm not worried. That's not the right way to put it. But Vancouver is, they are the the pesky team that's left in this tournament that is also really good. Like, I think they belong as one of the final eight teams. And I say that having done however many episodes of this where we say that uh, the media and the fans up there, like you said, the fans are are very capable of becoming obnoxious if they, like, win the cup or something. I think there's unrealistic expectations for that team up there in the sense that they feel like it's their right to win the cup this year. I don't think they're that good, but they are one of the most entertaining teams in this league right now to watch. And a lot of, it's not just Elias Pettersson. So I think they're going to push Vegas all the way to game seven. Now, Quinn Hughes has had a, had a terrific postseason. And what, what I 
thought St. Louis would be able to do is make Vancouver defend a little more. We saw St. Louis's great forecheck. That was one of the keys to their success last postseason. And Vancouver just didn't let them do it. They got out of their zone quickly. I think Vegas has a better forecheck than St. Louis. I think they are going to make Vancouver defend. And that's where I think we'll find out just how good Quinn Hughes is because he does play sheltered minutes. He does play with their skill all the time. We haven't had to watch him defend a lot. And granted, that's because he's so good at getting the puck out of the end quickly. But I think Vegas will change that a little bit. Uh, just just for fun, I'm going to say Vancouver in six. Oh, all right. Stepping in here and being bold. Who did Jamie take? He took the Golden Knights in six. Jamie, again, uh, go back to that Colorado pick. He shouldn't be allowed to take Colorado. He spent yeah, he the entire start him. of the season saying they weren't even a playoff team. And now give he's like, oh, I'm winning the cup. Yeah, give him credit for for admitting his wrongdoing. He never really admitted he was wrong, though. He just started taking oh. them and, and quietly taking credit on both sides. Um, Greg, you've mentioned two of these guys, but I, I threw this in the notes, too. We're seeing the next wave, I think, of truly elite defensemen in this league. And the names I threw out there, just because you've mentioned two of them now, and, and Miro Heiskanen and Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr, and I know Seth Jones is a little bit older than these guys, but he's also probably the best of all of them right now. But are there other ones that you've seen in these playoffs that you would put in that group, or is it those four? I think it's those four. I think that's a good group to mention. And by the way, David Poyle lost a trade. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> he still won the uh, Philip Forsberg for Martin Erat one, though. So. <laughs> in a landslide, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, over to the Eastern Conference. Hey, speaking of Washington, I don't know why we didn't lead off here. I thought Washington uh, was in the Western Conference, per my notes. Oh, that's true, according right. to your notes. But the way, I've always learned that, that they were in the Eastern Conference, so we're going to go okay. with how, how I've been raised. Let's um, run with that. Islanders, pull this off. I did not think they were going to do this, and they pulled it off in five games. Yes, you called it. I picked the Islanders, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll give it away now. I'm picking the Islanders again. I think I'm joining you on that one. All right, but, um, okay. Because yeah, uh, Philadelphia hasn't been all that impressive. I really they really they haven't. Been, you know, they're yeah. just kind of there. They felt, we'll get to them, I guess, in a second. But when it's weird when you watch the Flyers, they keep winning. So I can't take anything away from them. But you notice the guys on the other team. Philadelphia is like the other team in a sports movie that's just kind of there, but they keep winning. So you can't give, you know, it's not like you're watching the Flyers and be like, oh, Claude Giroux really took over this game. I don't even remember Claude Giroux playing against Montreal. How do you think Barry Trotz does this? I mean, this is, as I mentioned in the notes, speaking of balance scoring, 16 of the 20 Islanders skaters who played in that last series had at least a point. That is quintessential Barry Trotz hockey. They do not have the top-end talent. We all know that. Their defensive structure is ridiculously good. They literally suffocate teams. But how does he get team after team after team to buy in? You look at the guy. I don't know if you've interviewed Barry Trotz, but he's my height. He, he looks like he could be a mob boss until you talk to him and then it all goes away because he's like the nicest guy in the world. He talks and talks and talks. Yeah, and, talks. and he's fantastic in analysis too. He's incredible with the media. I, I don't know how the guy does it, but I, I, I kind of believe he's the best coach in hockey. Yeah, I had yeah. asked somebody the other day. I mean, he's got to be top three now. Who, who is in like competition? I mean, would you put John Tortorella up there? I mean, who, yeah. who, who would you have up there with Barry Trotz as competing with him? You know? If we're not going all-time like accomplishments and we're just going right now, like who do I want to coach my team in, right. in next right. season, Trotz is number one. Tortorella is probably number two, although there's a certain – you have to have the right roster construction, I think, for Tortorella to, to be your coach. He'll get more out of, of, of your players if you give him a certain group, whereas I think he's just going to frustrate your players if you give him like – like I don't know how great of a coach Tortorella would be with Edmonton. Maybe he'd still be good. I don't know if he'd be as, as, uh, as impressive – 
I don't know who that third guy is. I mean, I, I do think Dave Tippett's pretty high up there. Um, there were times when I think Mike Sullivan belongs up there, but he also might not be the Penguins coach six months from now. So obviously Joel Quenville, based on what he's accomplished, um, I don't know. But I think right now Trotz is number one. Yeah. Um, Washington, I didn't, Washington missed Backstrom in this series, right? I think he, he only played three games, right? But on the yeah. flip side, did you guys see John Carlson's plus-minus stat? And I, I'm not a plus-minus guy unless it's extreme. He was yeah. minus 11. That's minus 11. So he, he's minus 11. That's the worst mark in the playoffs. And that, he was my pick for the Norris. And I'm not going to change <laughs> it because it doesn't account for the, the playoffs, obviously. But that, that was – this is the series, I will admit, I watched the least of because I can't stand Tom Wilson, as is well documented on this, this podcast. <laughs> and to my knowledge, he had four questionable hits, at least in this series. So my question for you guys is, did the Islanders just not retaliate? It seemed like he sort of did his stupid Tom Wilson stuff, and they just went about winning. And to yep. me, maybe that is Trot saying, hey, look, I used to coach this guy. He's the dirtiest player in hockey history. He's going to run his trash out there, and his idiot fans that support him for some reason are going to make excuses <laughs> but they're going to make those excuses by watching us advance and not them. I think Barry Trost probably used different language than that. Um, oh, okay. If you, if you want to put that in his mouth, go ahead. But I, I certainly think Barry Trost knew a lot about this Capitals roster, clearly, because they let him go after they won a cup, which still boggles the mind. Insane. So he knew how to attack this team. But, yeah, the Islanders were patient. The Islanders were disciplined. They were, they were all the things that Barry Trost's teams are. And they won this series with surprising ease. They damn near made it a sweep. Yeah, basically it took a, an Ovechkin-like performance from Ovechkin to prevent the sweep, essentially. Yep. Um, to me, Washington is still so loaded with talent, there's no excuse for them to be going out in the first round. And I don't, know if, I don't think that would have changed if there wasn't a break. I think the Islanders are just not a great matchup for them because of Barry Trotz and nothing else. But Washington and certainly Pittsburgh goes in that group as well. And I would almost say Edmonton, although they have no defense. Those are teams that, that shouldn't be losing in the first round right now, and yet they're all gone. Edmonton didn't even – Pittsburgh didn't even make it to the first round. Uh, Philadelphia-Montreal, we sort of touched on. Give the Flyers credit. They're the number one seed in the East. They weren't all that impressive in beating Montreal. I got to say, as much as I didn't want to see Montreal obviously beat Pittsburgh and I thought they would get just smoked by the Flyers – Considering Brendan Gallagher was playing with what, like a torn hip and a broken jaw towards the end of the last game he played, that team hung around and they had no business being there. Like that, that all the respect in the world for Montreal. Yeah, your guy Nick Suzuki, who you were saying was the best player in the NHL. I knew you were kidding, but <laughs> we need to we need to tell some of our listeners that so they don't take you literally. <laughs> but um, to be fair, I asked you and Jamie via text, "Is Nick Suzuki the best player in the NHL?" And Craig responded as if I were serious with, "No." <laughs> here, here i will give the canadians credit for fighting in this series and, and making it a, an interesting series but again and i've said this before i don't think this means a brighter future for montreal and i think this actually hurt them because i think they needed more draft capital and now they're not getting it yeah i, I agree with that 100 percent, actually um tampa bay and columbus it's uh it feels like forever ago game one of that series the one that went five overtimes by the way, Matt, Luke couldn't wait to get off of Montreal. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more than we have to talk about. That's I did mention, by the way, that Max Doing was just the guy in this series. He didn't show me much. Yeah, you know, that's actually – that is probably worth talking about because even before you put that in the notes, I had noticed it with the people I was, I was watching uh, the games with too. It's like you occasionally hear his name, 
he is one of those players. And it's weird because he's in, he's going to be forever associated in terms of Coyotes fans with Alex Galchenyuk. Another one of those players that was a high pick that you see all this skill, especially in junior. And then they get to the NHL and they just can't put it together. I mean, is it possible we saw Max Domi's best years when he was with the Coyotes? Maybe. And he's an RFA. So what does Montreal do here? Do you, do you commit to him for the long term? Or and what do those contract negotiations look like? I, I didn't think he showed much in this postseason. So that's, a, that's an interesting decision that they have coming. I've even heard it suggested that he might be in play as another trade chip. Wow. See, I think because you traded for him, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to overpay him, but I almost feel like you have to to re-sign him for a couple years. But he's another one of those players where if you're going into next season saying, hey, Max Domi's our best player, okay, cool, you're not, you know, it doesn't make him a bad player. He's not going to carry a team through the playoffs ever. Like you said, we didn't even really see him in these playoffs other than sometimes on the bench drinking water. Uh, Tampa, Tampa Bay and Columbus – that, that that first game, now that we look back, and I know, Craig, you brought this up uh, last episode because it was right after that game. It seems like maybe that was it for them. You know, they went out there. They had that brutal series against Toronto that they bounced back after that that <laughs> meltdown at the end of game four, and they win game five. To go out there and have your goalie make 85 saves and you play basically eight periods after you just played two days earlier and not win, that seemed like that was it. I'll, I'll go back to what I said at the start of the series. I was going to pick Columbus – but after being at the uh, after seeing Tampa and how how talented they are, and I feel like the break maybe kind of helped them this year because there's less focus on them. But also being at the awards show last year and seeing all those guys even behind the scenes just still miserable, even as they were accepting major awards and talking to the media, all they wanted to talk about was how they lost to Columbus and then not really talk about anything else because they got Columbus. I just didn't think there was any way they were losing the series this year. Yeah, and and I felt like they slayed that demon in game one. Yeah. Once once you get through that, it probably was a, a big mental hurdle for them. Look, this is a significantly diminished Columbus roster over what it was last year. We've talked a lot about the players that they lost and how admirable it was that they did what they did this season, but they were not the team that they were last year. And once Tampa got an edge in this series, I, I kind of felt like they were going to win it. That's why I actually kind of question. I mean, Craig, you one of you put in the show notes, um, you know, now that, now that they've slayed that demon, um, you know, can anybody stop them after this? I do kind of wonder if now that that loss to Columbus is still in the back of their minds when they face Boston because they know that Columbus is diminished this year. Like, you still need to go out there and win a playoff series that's sure. really competitive against a really good team. Yeah, and I, I'm almost disappointed that these two teams are playing each other in this round because yeah. it feels like the Eastern Conference Final, and that's that's what the round robin did for us because Boston chose – not to compete in the, the round robin as it looks now. <laughs> they, they showed up once the playoffs started, but they didn't seem to care at all when the round robin was going on. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you there. Boston and Tampa should, I think, should be the Eastern Conference final, but, uh, but obviously it's not because they're playing in this round. So that leaves the last series we haven't gotten to. Boston and Carolina, this was ultimately a strange series in the sense that we saw Tuka Rask uh, opt out of the bubble in the middle of it. We saw pasta come back he doesn't look like pasta right now uh, we saw boston ultimately win out because they are i mean probably were the best team last year probably should have won the cup if brad marchand doesn't make a stupid line change at the end of the first period in game seven um and could easily win the cup again this year but i tell you what i thought carolina had a fighting chance until andre svechnikov got hurt and then that was just it and maybe they wouldn't now looking back i mean boston ended up winning by playing their style of hockey but the second carolina lost svechnikov that was just it 
Yeah, but he had it coming. <laughs> yeah. Just ask Jack Edwards. <laughs> you wow. want to talk about stupid things that were said by announcers oh. in the last week. I mean, Milbury's is, is, is still king, but <laughs> Jack Edwards is – I don't know. Jack Edwards is right there because – he, he took the time to tweet out. It wasn't a heat of the moment, oh, I accidentally said this. He took the time to essentially tweet out that Sveshnikov had it coming. What did he say? Because he poked the bear. And you go yeah. back and watch the video, it wasn't even him. It was Sebastian Ajo that was, quote, poking the bear. So inaccuracy, uh, a ridiculous statement. and But, but that's, that comes from Jack Edwards all the time, too. By the way, a guy who is probably the least – respected uh, broadcaster of, of all the uh, the team guys in the league by his own peers. There are a bunch of people who just think he's a joke. And and when he says things like that, you understand why. Well, Vander Kane uh, was uh, – mark him among those people that does not respect him because he quote tweeted him with, with some – basically said, no surprise, this is what we all expect from this guy. Yeah. Talk about I, – look, I understand that if you're on the home broadcast, you're not going to be as unbiased as you typically should be because there is a certain level of like, Hey, you're, you're also sort you're getting of paid by the team. <laughs> yeah. You, you are supposed to like some build up some enthusiasm for that team, but this is not the first time where he's, he's looked at an injured player on another team and implied they deserve it because they're not on Boston. The best yeah. tweet I saw was from some random person. Cause I believe that game was going on during a coyotes game. So I didn't see it as all as it happened. Some random person tweeted. I just want to, I want, a video of Jack Edwards watching the departed, the movie. And I just want to hear him announce it. Cause he's going to say there's no crime because it all took place in Boston. <laughs> that was that to me was the tweet of the day when it came to, uh, to Jack Edwards. Um, Boston. What is, the, what is the sentiment in Boston for Jack Edwards? I don't have a good feel on that pulse. It's pretty Boston mixed. Fans actually. like him. No, a lot of them think he's a clown actually. <laughs> so, okay. I, I don't oh, get fair. why he stays. I don't, I, I don't get it. Honestly, I don't understand what they're doing there. They must be completely tone deaf. Yeah. I mean, there's another, it, it's completely different to say like, Oh, look at this amazing play that Halak made, or even to sit there and say, okay, that's not so-and-so's fault that Svechnikov got hurt, but to feel the need to go to Twitter after the game and say he deserved it. It's like, yeah. we're not talking about, even if he was a dirty player, you don't tweet that, but we're not no. talking about a dirty play. It's, Again, Tom Wilson is the dirtiest player I've ever seen. I don't want the guy to get hurt. Yeah. Um, can Yarl, can Yarl Halak lead this team to the cup now that Tuca's gone? I mean, he's yeah. that good, right? That this is. I mean, you don't foresee these circumstances, but again, how important is it to have two starting caliber goaltenders? Very few teams can say that, and this this happens to be an elite team that has two starting caliber goalies. Yeah. Um, you know, all the time we talked earlier in the season of do the Coyotes have the best goalie tandem, there were other teams in the conversation. But to me, Boston was always the one where it's like, if the Coyotes aren't number one, Boston is. Because you can count on Halak. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much you can count on Ranta because a lot of times when he comes in, he can't stay in. Halak has been a number, a borderline elite number one starter in this league before. Yeah, no question. I, I would say that this is the top pair. Um, okay, so let's go through these uh, Eastern Conference here real quick. Boston and Tampa. Well, you know what? Let's start with Philadelphia and the Islanders. I think, Craig, you already alluded that you're going to keep riding the uh, the Islanders train. I am. I'm going to take the Islanders in seven, but I'm sticking with them. Yeah, I'll take the Islanders in seven as well. I don't. They don't look like they get rattled. And Philadelphia just hasn't been nearly as impressive as a team like all these other teams that had the first round by that turned it on. Philadelphia hasn't yet. Matt, what do you got? I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to say I would take the Islanders in five. Um, wow. I just say, because to me, it's the, the points that have already been made. I mean, Luke talked about the calmness of the team. 
We've talked about the quality of the the coaching, the distribution of the points that are on the team. Um, I mean, we talk about Vegas being built for the playoffs. Um, I mean, I would say the same thing of the Islanders, no? Yeah, AB. Jamie's got the, the Flyers winning in seven. Okay, so the Islanders are going to win. Okay, good. Yeah. It's good to know. There it is. And, and then this one, um, I don't know how you guys would rank these series coming up, the, these four series that are left. To me, it goes Islanders-Flyers is the least compelling to me. Uh, I would say Vegas and Vancouver is the most compelling. And then I would say this is second most right here, the, the Bruins and Tampa Bay. Um, and I, you could easily flip those, certainly. You could say Bruins-Tampa Bay is number one. This might be the cup. It, like you said, Craig, I think it is the Eastern Conference final. Yeah, I'd probably go Lightning Bruins first and then uh, Vegas and Vancouver second for teams that I want to watch or series that I want to watch. Dallas still, I, if Dallas keeps doing what it's doing, they, they might be more compelling TV than I thought they would be because I didn't think they, they would be this interesting offensively, and they have been. And Colorado is clearly a team that is a blast to watch. So, I mean, yeah, the Islanders Flyers would probably be number four. That, that, that's the only thing that I can say with certainty. That's yeah. the number four series, but I'll watch all of them. Oh yeah, me too. I, like I said at the start of the show, seven hours ago, it it, it <laughs> already feels weird only having one or two games a day. Um, we're only an hour in, by the way, aren't we? Right? No, I think. we're well over an hour. <laughs> we, oh God, we are way over an hour. Never mind. <laughs> Isn't it refreshing too that these games aren't going to be at like nine in the morning anymore? Like you don't have to like set your alarm clock to get up and watch hockey. <laughs> Spoken like a young guy. So you set your alarm clock for 9 a.m.? I no, love I get, those up, day I get games. up well before that. But. I mean, I didn't want to watch 9 o'clock games, but I, I like the Coyotes' 11.30 starts. That was great. Cause, yeah. Well, as far as work is concerned, yes. Yeah, exactly. Time to write. That. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. Um, I don't know where to go in the series. I'm going to go Tampa. I'm going to go Tampa and 7 just because Pasternak doesn't look right. And I'm going to stick with the the – I guess my prediction at the start that it was going to be Vegas and Tampa in the cup. So it would be weird to not follow through with the way they've both looked. So as much as, as I fear Boston the most, and I, you don't, you don't make a a lot of good predictions picking against the Bruins. I'm going to go Tampa in seven and just sort of grit my teeth here now for the next two weeks. We have a danger of uh, consensus pick here because I took the lightning in seven too. And so did Jamie. And I would also say the lightning in seven. There it is. No fun in that. No, no, well, we just proved that you don't need Jamie Eisner for this show. That was a given. And uh, do, you, do you want to answer some listener questions, or do you want to blow them off? We're we're coming close to two hours here. Do we want to just do? Uh... It's up to you guys. If you want to just blow them all off, Luke, I'll just make it clear that it was you that made that decision. And <laughs> you already did that when you yeah. uh, sent the tweet out here. How about I randomly pick one? Okay. One question. You are today's winner. <laughs> we, we've gone so far past what we were going to go past. Um, okay. Maybe we because a lot many, of these actually. I think we could go staccato lot, here. We could go rapid fire and knock them off quick, quickly. Yeah, you'd think that, but some of these best moment of the season by AZ oh, Hockey Nut. Yeah. Worst yeah, moment. Yeah, I'm not answering season. that one. <laughs> no, best moment of the season I got. It's the the back to back wins over Washington and St. Louis on the road. Uh, I'll say th- that is that is I would agree. Runner up Darcy Kemper body slamming Matthew Kachuk. Oh, you took mine. <laughs> I was sitting here thinking. I'm like, yeah, that's going to be my answer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, worst moment of the season was game five. How's that? Yeah. The, the, the way the postseason ended. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Los Coyotes, Steve, which players took positive steps in their development this season and in the, the, uh, the playoffs season, Jacob Chikorin and Lawson Krause would be two that I would name. Um, I mean, yeah. 
Darcy Kemper was already there um, in the postseason. I, I, like I said, I thought Clayton Keller did some things that were positive in this postseason. So you can look at that and say, okay, there's some hope there. I agree, especially given the context of his contract. To bring it up again, this is the guy that the Coyotes are paying him to be. Like they're not yeah. paying him to win, win best player of the month in October. That's not like who cares, you know? I, absolutely, and I would I would even go back to what you said with uh, about Kemper Craig that he was already there. As it turns out, he was. But at the start of the season, we really only had that second half of last year as a body of work where he had played 22 games in a row and, and when he had started 37 of 41 or something. I remember at the start of the season, the question was, do you go with Ranta first or do you go with Kemper first and you just play them for a couple games and go with the other and it's going to be a 40-40 split? I actually think Kemper took another step forward this year to get to the point that, that he ultimately got to. Um, Coyote and Philly, when is Cat Silverman coming on the podcast? I would mm. say soon. Yeah, I would I mean, say. Yeah, why not? I mean, Jamie doesn't want to come anymore, and you know, we we don't, we can't call on Matt every week. So, I don't. This Jamie person you keep bringing up, it's it's awkward because I don't remember who they are. Mm. Um, Dangle Snipe Belly, which series of CSI is the best? I've never seen an episode of CSI. I don't watch CSI either. So, Matt, never seen it. Not a big nope. TV guy, actually. Sorry, sorry, Dangle Snipe Belly. Uh, can't I think that you, one. I think you guys just upset Dangle. But here's a Snipe's question. Is the Central Division going to be as scary in a couple of years or hopefully be weaker than it is now? I think it's tough to predict. Yeah, same. I, do, I don't think you can predict what's going to happen a couple of years down the road. Yep. I, yeah, there's, to, there's so much like parity and fluctuation and guys surprise you or people get traded. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I mean, we know Nathan McKinnon will be there because he signed for like $50 a year for the next five or six years still. Um, the division I wouldn't want to be in is the Metro because the number one and number two pick go into the Metro division every single year. So that's probably <laughs> the one to stay away from at this point. Um, let's see. Do you guys want to do any more of these? Who are the top five options for the GM position for the Coyotes in your position or your opinion? That's from Mitch. Oh, wow. Uh, all right. Let me just throw out five names. I've okay. written some of these names already. I'll... Shane Doan. We all think he should be back at this organization. Sean Burke, who has a lot of ties. And then I'll name three outsiders. One, who I have no idea if he'd even be interested in it, but I, I think he's done a lot of good things and he's a sort of an under the radar candidate. I'll, I'll start first of all with two guys. People know Ray Shero, who's done some great things in this league. Um, Ron Hextall. Yeah. And then my, my dark horse uh, guy that really hasn't been mentioned anywhere is Mark Hunter. Who's done some great work at the, yeah. Yeah. You know, the junior levels and et cetera. That is interesting because I have heard his name a little bit lately. I don't know if there's if there's if we're just hearing it from the same people or if we just randomly came up with that individually or if there actually is some buzz. Hextall's an interesting one too. Yeah. Uh, I've given my thoughts on Shiro certainly on the show before. I think he did an outstanding job with the Penguins. I actually think he did a decent job with the Devils. But Shane Doan, if he is the GM, obviously that's that's huge for all Coyotes fans. If even if he isn't the GM, are we going to see him involved with this organization soon? I don't know, but I, I hope so. It's past due that they bring him back. If they do bring him in in that role, I know he's been working with the league and he's learned a lot of things, but I still think maybe he needs someone, you know, an experienced hand to work with. So maybe if you can structure it right, maybe you have a president of hockey operations above him and then you have Doan learning from whoever that mentor is. Doan is a very articulate and intelligent person when it comes to sports. Like, sure I is. mean, I mean, obviously he's a former professional athlete, but I mean, he – He's come on the shows at 98.7 before, and he is very knowledgeable, not just about hockey, but about like baseball and football, has very sound opinions and reasons for why he feels the way that he does. He's not just a guy that used to play hockey. He's a really smart sports mind, for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. We just don't get him talking about fantasy baseball unless you want to do a two-hour <laughs> show. Um, Alex, thoughts on Mike Milbury and who you'd like to see replace him? I mean, we sort of touched on that. Mike Bil- Milbury says a lot um, of dumb things, and he probably should stop saying dumb things. I'd take a warm donut as a replacement. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, the position he's in, every broadcaster would love to do that job. There's, it's not like they're like, well, I don't know if we could find somebody else. You could literally pick from everybody, so I'm sure you can find somebody. Okay, Domsky, which two players from the Coyotes' core do you think could be moved? I don't think anybody from the core is getting moved right away. Do you? What, what if they can't trade any of the veterans and they want to make some moves here? What if they don't believe? What if the new GM doesn't believe in one? I, I don't know. I, I guess my answer is I, I, just, I simply can't answer when I don't even know who the new GM is. It's just too hard to predict. Yeah, that that's the thing. I mean, it, it's not going to be chickering. You're not moving a defenseman like that that took steps forward who ultimately isn't really getting paid that much. Um, the other thing, too, we talked about this earlier. I don't want to cycle back too much. But with Chaika and some of these moves he made, the thought was that the cap was going to be going up. And yes, there's that. This too. is all pre-pandemic when there is no cap going up. I don't know who they would move from the core, but it, it wouldn't be chickering. I don't like you said, Craig. If we don't know who the GM is, we we can't really answer that one yet. Um, all right, I think that's most of them. So, yeah, that's a good we, job. Yeah, I assume you're saying I did a good job. So thank you. Yes, it's uh, all you, Luke. Thanks, I appreciate that, Craig. Mm-hmm. Matt, thanks for uh, for sacrificing seven hours of your Saturday to do the show with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, for Matt Lehman, not for Jamie Eisner and Craig Morgan. I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hattrick Podcast. Jamie, who?